Welcome to Why America, the immigration podcast. I'm Tim Kaine. Inspired by the immigration of millions of foreigners to the country that President George Washington hoped would be the home for refugees across the world, we'll explore what makes the United States so special. Our guest on today's podcast is France Hong, a veteran entrepreneur and a longtime friend of mine, also a West Point graduate. France has gone on from his career in the U.S. Army after graduating in the top 1% of his class at West Point to found multiple companies. Boodle AI is the current technology startup that he's working on, but he's also founded Mag Aerospace, FHH, a 25-person law firm, Chisel, a co-working space in the metro D.C. area. Mag Aerospace, I think, might be the biggest in terms of thousands of employees, uh, a leading independent provider of manned and unmanned full-spectrum outsource intelligence. So incredible career as an entrepreneur. But France, you're here because you have this amazing life story from leaving Vietnam at the age of one, coming to America as a refugee. The Vietnamese refugees weren't wanted in a lot of places, welcomed as I recall, up in Washington state, and then took an oath to the Constitution at seven years old, which I put in my book, Immigrant Superpower, eight years old. I wanted to tell your story there. So happy to have you here. But France, I'm going to ask you first question. How many times have you been asked to take an oath to the Constitution because of different types of service? Hey, first off, uh, it's great to join you, Tim. It's it's always a pleasure to catch up. And it's a, it's wonderful to be on today's podcast. Love what you're doing. Uh, that's a great question. And until you asked me, I had to kind of think about it for a bit. I've taken an oath probably at least seven times. I mean, West Point in the Army twice as a assistant United States attorney uh, when working for the White House a couple times as a law clerk. Those are all instances where I had to raise my right hand and, and take an oath in service to the Constitution. I can't imagine. I think I've done it twice. It may have been three times, but you've served in all three branches, right? So you've worked in the executive branch for the president. You've worked for the judicial branch, legislative branch. I didn't realize that. When did you serve in the legislative branch? Yeah, during during law school, I served as a law clerk to the Senate Judiciary Committee in Arlen Specter's office, Senator Arlen Specter's office, which was just a fantastic experience. Got to see how the, the wheels of government turn, sometimes twists and turns, but uh, got to see how it turns firsthand. Let's go back, France, to that first time you are seven years old. Didn't you have to take a test, like a citizenship test as an immigrant to prove that you knew the Constitution and who the first president was and that sort of thing? You know, normally when you get naturalized as an adult, that's exactly what you have to do. Uh, My path was interesting. You know, I'm, I'm a refugee from Vietnam. Um, I came over when I was 18 months old. My father was a South Vietnamese army officer. My mother, you worked with the Naval Attache, U.S. Naval Attache. We were evacuated in April of 75 in the first wave out of Vietnamese allies that were evacuated by the U.S. government. And we came here as, interestingly, parolees, which is a, a special status that was granted to us by the U.S. government at the time. But it's only a temporary status. It, it only allows us to stay in the country for a certain period of time. And so U.S. Congress had to meet and alter our status. And there was a, a special piece of legislation that said that the people who are in HP, humanitarian parole status, could become green card holders, lawful permanent residents. And so our status was first adjusted shortly after we arrived to become green card holders. And then they said that after you held that status for a number of years, you could apply for and become U.S. citizens. And so in my case, 
I became a citizen by virtue of that legislative act. So literally, it took an act of Congress signed by the president to make me a, a U.S. citizen. And in 75, France, the president was Gerald Ford. Is that right? Correct. And was he the one that granted the parole status? And I, and I, if, if I recall, this was controversial at the time. It was. If you look in the bowels of the internet, you can see a press conference in the spring of 75 where President Ford stands up and says, you know, we're not going to abandon our Vietnamese allies. We're going to use the tools at our disposal, the military and other tools, and try to evacuate all the American citizens, as many Vietnamese allies as we could. And so thus began one of the great humanitarian acts in U.S. history that, frankly, we don't celebrate enough. Uh, which was the evacuation over 110,000 Vietnamese allies by American forces in the weeks following the, the fall of Saigon. And that act, right, involved also funding the evacuation, which he had to go to Congress and he had to work across the aisle to get the funding. And then the, the legislative authorities, including what is going to be the status of these individuals. And so uh, his lawyers and his team figured out that the Attorney General of the United States could grant humanitarian parole status. And so there was a whole task force put together to figure out how to make this evacuation happen, both operationally, legally, and you know financially in terms of funding it. So who were the other heroes, France? We know, Ger would you say Gerald Ford's a hero in this story? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, his leadership was, was absolutely critical. Look, there's thousands of heroes in this story. There's lots of untold stories. The members of his cabinet who found a way to work, the, the leaders in Congress who, despite the fact that this was incredibly unpopular at the time, I, I remember reading a piece of, of journalism that talked about they did a poll at the time of, of the American public to ask who supported the immigration of Vietnamese allies to the United States, and only 36% of Americans supported it. The vast majority of Americans were not in support of that. And so this, this was really an act of political courage and moral courage at the time by, by our leaders in the White House and in Congress. And of course, the incredible courage of the people on the ground. And there's, there's a lot of untold stories about soldiers and sailors and airmen and Marines and State Department workers and other folks in government who are doing incredible things to get their Vietnamese allies out. Tell me about uh, Tumwater, Washington. My family, when we came out, the first place we stopped was in Guam. In a matter of weeks, the United States set up a essentially a staging base, what we would probably call a lily pad now, for over 50,000 uh, Vietnamese allies, re refugees in transit. And then from there, uh, after some processing, they arrived at one of four places in the United States that were handling the kind of arrival of these Vietnamese travelers. Um, the first camp set up was Camp Pendleton, and so that's where my family arrived. So ironically enough, my very first plane flight ever was on a C-141 Air Force star <laughs> Saigon. And the first place I ever lived in the United States was in a GP medium tent on a Marine Corps base in California. At the time, like I mentioned, this was pretty controversial. Governor Brown famously made a statement that he didn't want a single Vietnamese refugee to stay in the state of California. Wait, wait, wait. Jerry Brown? Yes. Wow. I didn't know that. He did. And uh, the governor of Washington state at the time, Governor Dan Evans, heard this and, and was like, what's, what's the hubbub? And so he sent his aide, then Ralph Monroe, down to Camp Pendleton to lay eyes on the situation for himself. And 
Ralph sends back pictures and, you know, gives an update. And Governor Evans says, well, deliver a message to all these refugees. Tell them that they are all welcome in the state of Washington. And, and because of that message and because uh, Governor Evans, you know, used the tools at his disposal to help Vietnamese refugees resettle in the state of Washington, even to this day, Washington state has a disproportionately large population of Vietnamese Americans. And so my family was one of those. And, and we settled in uh, Tumwater, Washington, a small town about an hour south of Seattle, just south of Olympia, because a sponsor family uh, took us in. At that time, not dissimilar to what's happening now with the Afghan refugees, a number of organizations stood up to help Vietnamese refugees resettle and start a new life. In our case, it was uh, Don and Mary Peterson of, of Olympia, Washington, and they they opened up their, their home to us and, and helped get my family's feet on the ground. You mentioned these names, um, Dan and, and Ralph, I think. Do you know them, France? I have met them, yes. Uh, I met Ralph Monroe uh, several years uh, back, and we've, we've struck up a friendship, and I've had the honor and privilege of, of interacting and meeting former Governor Evans uh, several times. Uh, he, wow. They're, they're both still alive and, and in Washington State. What an amazing story. Tell us about that meeting. That's just amazing, France. In Ralph's case, I heard about this story about him coming to Camp Pendleton. And so I, I sent him an email, kind of out of the blue, and he immediately responded and said, I'm coming to Washington, D.C. to receive an award from the Secretary of State Association, and can we meet up? And so I got a chance to meet him in person and shake his hand and, and sit at a table with him. And that just started a, a, a friendship that's lasted years. And so this and is that, after you've graduated from West Point and all that. Oh, well, yeah, well after. This is after, this is after I got back from Afghanistan. And then in, in Governor Evans' case, I got a chance because Governor Evans came out to that same ceremony. Ralph got, had a chance to introduce me to, to Governor Evans. And I've been back to Washington State on on several occasions and uh, whenever possible, um, you know, try to visit with both of them. You know, you mentioned how that was a heroic thing at the time and it wasn't popular in a lot of places, but attitudes have changed. This is one of the surprises I found in writing The Immigrant Superpower, that Americans today, if you look at Gallup polls and the attitudes that Americans have towards immigrants, so they want the numbers to increase, uh, stay the same or decrease, They've really flipped. It used to be two to one against more immigration. Now it's two to one in favor. That's true in all political parties. It's true from among independents. So the good news is, despite what we see in the media, that there's a lot of support. And I think looking at a case like yours, you know, why wouldn't we want more Americans? But you told me a story once about, you know, when you first thought of yourself as an American, you were reading, I think it was some books at the home library. Tell me about that experience, how you grew to understand what America is and, and your role in it. Yeah, you know, I grew up in, you know, Tomorrow, Washington is an amazing town. At the time I went there, there was a one high school town, 9,000 people. You know, there was some other Vietnamese families around, but, you know, I kind of grew up in small town America and my father loved books and collected books. And I, I still remember perusing the library and pulling down a book of American history. And being absolutely fascinated by it and, and thinking, this is my country, right? This is my history. And it's interesting because I wasn't born here, right? I was born in another country. You would think that that means I would feel allegiance somewhere else, but it's actually the opposite because I'm an American by virtue of being here, by being welcomed here, by being a citizen here and naturalized. And I understand that there's an alternate universe somewhere where I'm not an American. And so I, I have this wonderful gift of never taking my life here for granted and always being filled 
with gratitude for the life I have. And I think that's pretty common among immigrants. There is a, a love of America and a love of the opportunities that we have here because we realize there's an alternative to it. So France, this is this is personal and I haven't asked you this before, but when does that awareness come? Like I you know, I think back when I was 18 months old or even three years old, I, I moved around a couple of times. So I thought, oh, okay, I'm in Ohio now, not Michigan, right? Did you have any sense that ever I mean, when did you even become aware that you had immigrated from someplace overseas? Like every child, you grow up, you start being aware of history, you start hearing stories, your own family history. You start reading, right? In my case, reading about the Vietnam War, you know, watching some TV shows and learning about the context in which, you know, your life kind of evolved. You know, in my case, it was it was hearing about the atrocities committed against the South Vietnamese army officers and their families in Saigon and realizing, oh my goodness, that that could have been my family. Hearing about the re-education camps and, and the life that the people who remained in Vietnam have and comparing it to the life I have now. And hearing about the sacrifice that you know soldiers and sailors and airmen and, and marines made fighting in my home country and you know realizing that I owe them something owe them a debt right for for their service and their sacrifice and then as I grew up developing this sense of obligation that I wanted to repay that in some way and that's that frankly is what eventually led me to seek an appointment to to West Point and to go to West Point how did this materialize? I, I think you told me once about a, uh, a neighbor who was a, a veteran who'd served in Vietnam. It's one of those things. You, you don't realize what you mean necessarily to other people until later on. And I still remember growing up and, you know, this is in the, you know, the 80s and I'd meet Vietnam veterans and they always they always treated me a certain way. Right. There was this kind of like wistfulness. You know, there would almost be tears in their eyes when I asked them about their service. And I, I didn't have an appreciation at the time, what I probably meant to them, that there was something good that came out of their service. You know, now having served, right, having served in Afghanistan, you know, many years later helped Afghans, I, I get a sense of, of that, right, a, a deep sense of what, you know, I probably represented to those, those Vietnam veterans, me and others. And so talking to people like that obviously, you know, shaped my perception. And then, you know, going to places like the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, which, you know, I, I visited in D.C., and the Washington State Vietnam Veterans Memorial. It is a humbling thing to stand before a wall of names and realize, like, all these people died serving in your home country and in a way fighting for you and your freedoms. I've seen that photo of you. You said you just stood before the wall, but you were a cadet, as I recall. I'm seeing you in a West Point cadet uniform uh, saluting the wall. What year were you? Yeah, that was my last year at West Point, Tim. Just before I graduated, I had a chance to to come down to D.C. and I wanted to basically say thanks. And so, you know, I took a set of my cadet stripes and a letter I wrote and and left it at the wall and and spent some time there in in reflection just before I commissioned. It's an amazing photo. If I could, if I, I'll try to see if I can share that on the uh, on our website. But friends, I've got to laugh a little bit. See, I went to the Air Force Academy because I found out about it my junior year in high school. And and one of my good friends like, hey, there's this college where you can go and fly spaceships. So I thought that's where I, that's where I want to go to school. Uh, much more dorky than probably your your heart felt. But when did you first hear about this this special college called the United States Military Academy? 
Yeah, so my original plan was just actually to enlist in the army. Like often happens, right, that the hand of fate plays a role beginning my senior year of high school, which is pretty late as you realize in an application. Yes. A retired general contacted me out of the blue and says, look, France, um, I've been looking through files of different students, and I, I think you should consider West Point. You know, I'm 17. I have no idea what a general is. I'd heard of West Point, but I was really just thinking about military service in general, not, not West Point. But uh, you know, this is General Howard Francis Stone, retired three-star, used to command I-Corps, used to command Fort Lewis, class of 55, and he took a personal interest in me and encouraged and guided me. And I, I met a lot of, frankly, bumps in the road in trying to get into West Point. I had bad eyesight and was medically disqualified. And he he helped me through that process. And you know, I wouldn't be here, I wouldn't be a graduate of West Point and I wouldn't have done the things I did if it wasn't for his his intervention and, and mentorship. Wow. So tell me about your very first day at West Point. How, how did that day start? I never visited West Point. So again, like I applied in the fall of my senior year, which is extremely late in the process. I never made a visit to West Point. So literally the first time I saw West Point was the day I showed up, which means I really never saw West Point for the first year I was there, right? Because you're not exactly gawking and looking around when you show up. Right. But yeah, I mean, I, I took that flight out from home and, you know, stayed in a hotel the night before and then get on a bus the next morning and arrive. And they have you gathered in this gigantic auditorium up by the stadium and you know upperclassman comes out and says you've got five minutes to say your goodbyes to your parents well my parents weren't there and so i didn't say goodbye to anybody i just loaded on the bus arrived and immediately just started getting you know yelled at and hazed and indoctrinated and they yell at west point <laughs> yes they don't it's it's not like uh, the air force academy where they hand out uh, cupcakes and tea I believe, <laughs> when you show up right yeah i had a horrific first day, uh, I had a bag that was stolen that had all my stuff in it. And so like I stood up, like I did the one thing you don't want to do in the first day at any service academy, including the Air Force Academy, of course, uh, which is stand out. And I was, I was very much standing out the first day. That's funny. I, I was a little bit prepared because I had visited uh, Air Force. There was a flyby at the airport when I landed of two A-10s. And I and I thought that was just for me, right? I thought that was like, or, of course. I thought it was for everybody in our class. It was just a random thing. But um, no, you don't want to stand out, France. So you 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 had a you had a rough first day. But who did you meet? Who were your friends that you remember from uh, that summer? Look, you form a very strong bond with the cadets that you go through that experience with, right? So our first summer at West Point is called Beast Barracks, or just Beast for short. By the way, that name doesn't come from the fact that it's like a beastly experience. It comes from the fact that we arrive as beasts, right? Like we don't know anything about the military. We don't know anything at West Point and we need to be turned into cadets. So that's where the term comes from. And so you get organized into, you know, squads and platoons and companies. And so you, you become very, very close to your, what are called beast squad mates. These are the people you go through beast barracks with. And I, and this, you know, I know my beast squad mates and my beast platoon mates to this day, you know, many, many years. You served, and, and I have not talked to you about this before, but you served in Bosnia, right? Or former Yugoslavia. I don't know where exactly. W what were some stories about that you can tell us? When you graduate from West Point, you get to pick your branch and your first posting of choice based on class rank. I wanted to be a military police officer and I wanted to deploy. I wanted to do, I wanted to do my job 
in a deployed environment. And so at the time, this is the mid 90s, right? Think about this. This is pre-Cold War or post-Cold War, pre-GWAT, right? And so the only thing that was happening was peacekeeping in the former Yugoslavia. And so I knew that if I selected Germany as a posting, there was a good chance I would get a chance to deploy. And that's exactly what happened. I, I selected assignment to Germany, got assigned to the 95th MP Battalion, Military Police Battalion as a platoon leader, arrived, met my brand new platoon sergeant, my pretty much brand new platoon, and was told, you've got nine months to prepare this platoon for deployment to Bosnia. And that's exactly what I did. We spent nine months training up, then we self-deployed. And so what does that mean? Uh, it means we literally drove our platoon, its equipment, all its personnel uh, from Germany to Bosnia in an epic, you know, four and a half day road trip. And so self-deployed ourselves into the theater of operations. And then we're there for uh, nine, nine months and uh, did the full range of peacekeeping in the country of Croatia and Bosnia. We were right there on the, on the border between the two and controlled one of the three crossing points to the Sava River. And it was a fantastic experience. There's nothing like leading America's sons and daughters when they're forwardly deployed. For me personally, it was really eye-opening, Tim, because it was my first time being in a country that had experienced the loss of the rule of law, right? Like everywhere I looked, I could see rubble and destroyed homes. And I talked to people who had horrific things happen to their, their loved ones and their lives. I just realized we should back up a second. And, and for anyone younger who doesn't remember this, you know, before the wars in the Middle East, Cold War had ended. Soviet Union had become Russia, which was our friend at the time. And uh, there was this notion that history had ended, right? And suddenly uh, in the Balkans, this horrible civil war with literal genocide, Serbians fighting and attacking Bosnians, Croatians, who'd all been part of one country that had sort of splintered. So there were some terrible atrocities. You go into that. I'm trying to put myself in your shoes. You don't know what you're going to face. I mean, it could be incredibly dangerous. Maybe it was incredibly dangerous, France. I, I just think listeners may not remember how, how uncertain that time was. Yeah. I mean, there was something called the Dayton Peace Accords, which created a zone of separation between the warring entities. And, you know, different Western powers kind of divided up different zones and were peacekeeping forces there to enforce that zone of separation. So in the American sector, right along the Sava River, you know, there was this zone and on my southern half of my sector was where the, the Serbians were, right? And the northern half was where the Croatians were. And there was this, you know, zone where neither side was supposed to have military forces. The Serbians, interestingly enough, took all their military forces, put them in, I'm not kidding, purple camouflage and called them police forces and just left them in place. And so on a, I had a bridge that the Northern checkpoint was manned by Croatians and the Southern checkpoint was manned by Serbians. And I still remember having to deal with both sides. You know, here, here I am 22, right? Dealing with two former warring parties. And I have this very distinct memory. The Serbians opened up a police station and I had to go to the opening of it. And as I'm standing around, I'm realizing that, you know, some of these Serbian forces were probably involved in some of the atrocities that had been reported in this area. And in fact, while I was there, um, American forces found these mass graves of Croatians that used to live in the city that was on the Serbian side of the river, uh, Srpski Broad. So were the Croatians friendlier to you? They were. 
though, you know, our job wasn't to take sides. Our, our job was to be peacekeepers. And, you know, I had, I had three interpreters, one who was Croatian, one uh, was Muslim and one was uh, Serbian. And so it was interesting, right? My own little set of factions there, but, you know, for a 22 year old who had never left the United States, it was, it was certainly an eye-opening experience, like I said. And how successful was the mission, France? I thought it was very successful. I mean, during the time that we were there, right, no further conflicts emerged. Um, you know, obviously there was a lot of work being done to keep the warring parties at peace, to engage in the process of long-term nation building. Our job there was to kind of facilitate the travel of forces into uh, into Bosnia, the former Bosnia, from Hungary, which is where the, re the restaging base or intermediate staging base was. We were the second wave in. U.S. forces were there for many, many years afterwards. So, And do we still have U.S. troops on the ground in uh, the Balkans? I think a very small number, not not many. It's gone down over time, but I think that was, uh, I was asking this a bit rhetorically. I think it, I think of the Bosnia, or should say the post-Dayton peace accord mission as being a tremendous success at preserving peace in an incredibly fragile area. But I haven't, uh, I haven't done a lot of face-to-face -face discussions with, with folks who were there, including you. I think we just sort of glossed over it because, you know, the news about military deployments has been so driven by Afghanistan and you served in Afghanistan as well. After my time in uh, the White House, I had the opportunity to, to mobilize and deploy with a, a U.S. Army Special Forces unit, though I'm not a Green Beret myself. Now, hold on. We need to back up and talk about this, too. I, I, this happened too fast. You leave the Army, right? You go get a law degree, and you're, you have an incredibly successful career. You're clerking for incredible people. And then you're, you're asked to join uh, the White House as, uh, as a deputy counsel. Uh, Associate White House Counsel. Associate so the, White House Counsel. You're working yeah, in the so, White House for the president. Yes. So the White House uh, has its own set of lawyers called the White House Counsel's Office. Everything the president does is divided into different portfolios. There's a dozen plus Associate White House Counsels, and each Associate White House Counsel kind of covers down on a portfolio of issues for the White House. So for the White House, if they're dealing with something in your portfolio, you're the lawyer for it. So in my case, I was dealing with investigations uh, and I was dealing with Homeland Security issues. And so for two years, I had the incredible honor and privilege of being a lawyer to uh, the president and, and to the White House. But here's what blows my mind. You're not in the army at all, right? You've completely separated at this point. Yes, I did. I did five years after West Point and then got out completely, went, went to law school as a civilian clerked, like you said, for a, a couple of amazing judges, Judge Griffith and Judge Jamie Baker on the Court of Appeals to the Armed Forces. And then, uh, you know, I work at a law firm and then am asked to uh, serve at the pleasure of the president in the White House. You know, by the time I leave the White House, I've been you know, out of uniform for nine years. This is what I'm trying to imagine. You're leaving the White House. You've got law firms trying to hire you. You've probably got law schools that want you to come teach. West Point would maybe love to have you back as a professor. Wall Street firms are courting you. And you decide to do what? There is a, a special forces unit, and uh, they're part of the National Guard. And I become part of that unit, And uh, even though I'm not special forces. And I, I'm an Army captain again after working in the White House at the age of 35. After a nine-year break in service. Why do you go back in uniform? What are you thinking, French? You've got tons of money and comfort, and you, and you do this instead. 
Yeah, I think, you know, I think it boils down to three things. You know, first, I'm a West Point graduate, and this is what West Point graduates do, right? We go to the sound of the guns. Second, there was a part of me, you know, when I was in the White House, I kind of avoided anything related to kind of veterans in the military. And I was trying to figure out why. And I think I realized at some level, I felt like I hadn't done my due, right? Like this was the fight of our generation. I hadn't done my part. I wanted to do my part. And third, again, this goes back to what, you know, I I talked about earlier. I still felt a sense of obligation, right? This country has given me so much. You know, I wouldn't be here but for the service of others who bled and sacrificed in in my my native land. And so here was an opportunity to pay it forward and to serve in somebody else's native land and fight to make their country better. What was it like, France, flying into Afghanistan? It was kind of bizarre because it was such a uh, a dramatic change in my life, right? I went from picking out ties for work and going, showing up the White House to picking hand grenades and going on patrol. And so, you know, obviously spent several months training up with my special forces unit who are just fantastic, boarded these gigantic aircraft. And, you know, once again, right, an Air Force aircraft is leading me to a new phase in my life. And so, you know, landing there in Kabul and realizing this is real, right? <laughs> like I've, I'm here and I'm doing this. And, and also being, and this might sound strange, I'm feeling honored for the privilege, honored to once again put on the, the uniform of my country just and to lead America's sons and daughters in a Ford area. And you met um, Mike Waltz there, right? Uh, he was my commander. You know, he's uh, a congressman now, but back then he was Major Mike Waltz, uh, commander of Bravo Company, 2nd Battalion, 20th Special Forces. Yeah, I was I was his XO. That's right. I, I, I love, he, he's an author also of a fantastic book that's worth uh, looking up. And I think you must have introduced me to him and I was very impressed. And of course he ran for Congress, tough race, and he won and, and doesn't surprise me. So he's, I think, uh, someone we need to keep our eye on. So you, you served in Afghanistan and I, I honestly, friends, I could spend a half hour, but I realized we've got a block of time here to get through and you've got other appointments. So I want to talk to you, though, about what's happening in Afghanistan now and what happened when the Americans withdrew so abruptly. Uh, what happened to our allies? And you you might have worked with some individuals that you know personally. Tell me how that affected you. You know, uh, in August of 21, when Kabul fell, which took all of us by surprise at the speed at which that happened and the lack of preparedness for how to deal with the the fall, many of us, right, we've been in Afghanistan for two decades now. So just think about it. It's a couple of generations worth of national security professionals across the intelligence community, the military, the State Department, the contracting world have strong ties to Afghanistan. You know, during my time in Afghanistan, I worked closely with the Afghans. You know, Special Forces is partnered by, with, and through our Afghan partners. I relied on Afghan workers. I had Afghan translators who I couldn't have done my job without. Afghanistan was important to us on a professional and on a personal level. And so when Kabul fell as quickly as it did, myself, thousands of others, right, received pleas for help from our former Afghan allies. In the Vietnam era, there wasn't the ability to send a signal message or a WhatsApp message to the, you know, the army captain that you worked with five years ago, but there is today. And so the veterans, right, 
of Afghanistan from all the different governments stepped in to help their allies as best we could. And we saw an amazing mobilization. You know, some people called it a digital Dunkirk of volunteers that are trying to help our Afghan allies. In that tail end of August, the path to freedom was getting people into uh, the airport, Kabul International Airport, uh, Hamid Kazai International Airport, and onto a plane. And so there was a huge effort to, to make that happen, both on the ground and, and virtually. I was involved in, in one such effort by an organization called Allied Airlift 21, which was started by and run by an, a number of West Pointers, though there was also a, many, many non-West Pointers involved. After Kabul Airport closed down, myself and a couple of other veterans and some other volunteers uh, managed to organize the very first U.S. authorized private charter flight out of Afghanistan. Over several weeks, many, many sleepless nights and through the heroic efforts of many people, on September 17th, 2021, a plane containing 380 Afghan allies, 92 families, and over 150 children took off from Kabul International Airport. And I'm happy to say every this is a private plane. This is not a C-141. No, this is a private plane that we chartered and, and paid for. When you say we chartered, you mean you you raised money, you personally gave money to pay for the plane, for the pilot? My, myself and others. So, you know, it certainly was a, a, a team effort. But yes, it was a group of volunteers in, 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 in coordination with the U.S. government and authorized by the U.S. government. But yeah, we flew the very first tra- plane load of Afghan travelers out of Kabul to the lily pad at the time um, and still the current lily pad in, in Qatar. And I'm happy to say all 380 of those Afghan allies are now have now started new lives here in the United States. That, and I'm sure that's a, that's a separate adventure because it wasn't easy to get people from Qatar and the other lily pads across the ocean and into the United States, was it? It wasn't. It wasn't. And I'll tell you the whole time I'm doing this, right, whether it's sleepless nights talking to an Afghan family over WhatsApp or trying to coordinate a plane out of a country where we do not have any military diplomatic relations, with, which sounds just as hard as it sounds, the whole time I'm flashing back to my own family's experience and thinking about the plane that took me out of Saigon. And I would get a picture of a family with a young boy and thinking to myself, that was me. And so it was, uh, I'm not sure what the right word for it was, but it was heart-wrenching for me, but also in- incredibly, incredibly inspiring. These families that are here now and these children, do you know what percentage have been given a green card? Or are there some still in parole status that may be revoked? What's going on? Yeah, many of them are still in parole status. Some of them, some of the people that were already American citizens, some had green cards, some have achieved green card status uh, since arrival, but many of them are still in humanitarian parole status waiting for adjustment of their status. What, what, what needs to be done, France? Yeah, so uh, Congress needs to act. Just like in my case, back in 1975, uh, Congress passed something called the Indochina Adjustment Act, which adjusted the status of every, of every Vietnamese parolee in order to get a green card and three years later get citizenship. Congress needs to take some sort of action similarly for our Afghan allies that are here on humanitarian parole status. Because otherwise, the, the alternative is to seek asylum, which is a very complicated, expensive process which cannot be done in mass and so we we need to adjust the status of our afghan allies that are here and congress needs to act and do that so aside from the 380 folks on on your flight how many other people are we talking about 
This evacuation of Afghanistan was the single largest airlift in U.S. history, even larger than the one out of Saigon. Not all of them came to the United States. Uh, many went to allied countries. But, you know, we're talking well over 100,000 Afghans that were evacuated. But as amazing as that is, the need that remains is still even greater. Most of the folks that we evacuated, unfortunately, in the closing days of the fall of Kabul and before the closing Kabul airport, we're at the airport. We made a promise to our Afghan allies through the SIV program, that's the Special Immigrant Visa Program. If you, you're allied with the United States, you work for the United States, then you can apply for the status and come to the United States. There's still well over 100,000 plus people, including family members, that are SIV eligible, that are awaiting their visas and awaiting travel out of Afghanistan. Who are the heroes today, France? Who, who are the uh politicians and others that are working on this? I mean, there's a number of folks who deeply care about this um, issue. You know, obviously our friend Mike Waltz, Congressman McCall on the House Foreign Affairs Committee has taken a, a deep interest in this. Senator Blumenthal, the list goes on and on. We need Congress to act. They need to pass a piece of legislation and the White House needs to sign it. But the president just had a State of the Union speech. I don't know if he mentioned this issue at all. Is, is the White House, do they need to get some more fire or do they have the fire already and they're just being stymied? It's hard to say. I'm not involved in the White House the way I obviously used to be. The reports I received is the White House is supportive of, a, of adjustment. And there was a number of uh, members of Congress who were also supportive. I think it's a question of priorities. You can only get so many things done in the legislative session. And sometimes things just don't make it to the top of the list. This needs to make it to the top of the list. And whether it's the White House pushing harder or, or more members of Congress paying attention because their constituents make them pay attention. You know, the clock is ticking for our Afghan allies that are here. They're waiting for Congress to act so that they can have the the opportunities that I had, right, to become a citizen, to adopt this as their home, as their land, right, and and start a new life here. Fantastic. So is Allied Airlift still active? Is that a group that we should be directing listeners to? Yeah, absolutely. Allied Airlift 21, you can do a Google search, you can find it. Um, we have a group of volunteers and we're still actively helping Afghan allies navigate the process by which they can travel here to the United States. Well, and I, I've, I chipped in a little money just a little, and was was really in awe of the work you were doing at the time, and and still am. So okay, more more need more needs to be done, France. I wanted to uh, to let you close. I remember when we were talking about me writing a, a book on immigration, and you may have come up with the phrase "immigration is our superpower." That's what makes America a superpower. Do you want to riff on that a little bit? I've had the opportunity to travel to forty countries, 40 plus countries on the world. I've lived in several countries, you know, a couple of them for extended periods of time. And there's this wonderful quote from Reagan, and he was quoting somebody else, but he basically says something along the lines of, you can live in Japan forever long you want, you'll never be Japanese. You can live in France for decades, you'll never be French, right? But anybody can become an American. That is absolutely true. There is no other country in the world where people from around the world can come, want to come. And quickly be integrated, assimilated, and their sons and daughters grow up knowing they are Americans, America is their home, wanting to build businesses here, raise families here, fight for this country, bleed and die for this country. I'm an example of that. The Afghans that are coming over are an example of that. And in a world where we're increasingly polarized, where you see economies failing, where you see birth rates going low, 
you know, we continue, we as a country continue to grow, to prosper because of our diversity, because of um, our, our welcoming arms to immigrants and our ability to assimilate people and make them Americans. And that is our superpower as a country. You know, listening to you say these things, I find myself saying very similar things. Assimilation such a key phrase, but it makes it sound like you're going to, you want to change the way people thought to this new way, this new allegiance even. And yet the real strength, and I wonder if you'll agree with this, that America's got these universal values. So you're really trying to get people to recognize they had illusions before. And I think someone was talking to a German soldier or Nazi soldier in World War II. And why why did you fight us? This this Nazi sergeant was asking, you know, the guy, the 101st, I believe the story went, was like, we're trying to disabuse you of this notion that there's such a thing as a master race, right? So if that's what assimilation is, that we're all human beings, we're all created equal, we all deserve equal opportunity. I don't know if that assimilation is the right word, but I think it's a pretty important concept. You've taken an oath to it. You said how many times, six times or seven times? Yeah. And I would, you know, to kind of follow up on that, to me, assimilation doesn't mean we become a melting pot where everybody's kind of heterogeneous and the same, right? And we lose sight of where we came from and the differences. America's a salad bowl. Different pieces of the salad look different, you know, act different, but we're all part of the same greater whole. And that's what makes America great, right? That we are all Americans despite our differences and maybe because of our differences. And that's our strength. And that's the difference. Yes. Love it. It's great to be able to, to, to talk to you, to share these stories. Obviously I'm I'm passionate about America and about uh, immigration and and about service, and you know I I hope that other people listen to your message, uh, that these are part of the strengths of of our country and our society and celebrate it like we should. Well, this is just uh, I hope the first of many visits we get to to have with you talking about uh, immigration and and uh, the state of America, France. Thanks so much for your time today, and and you know I say this is one veteran to another. Thanks for your service. Yeah, thank you for yours. Why America, the immigration podcast, was made possible thanks to the support of the J.P. Conti Family Foundation. I'm Tim Kaine, and the producer is Ali Giu. If you like this podcast, take a look at theamericanlyceum.org with video and audio debates and interviews that aim to strengthen civil society by focusing on solutions and consensus rather than partisanship and division. Thanks so much for listening, and don't be a stranger. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.